Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Where are we? We're at the uh, Greenwich Observatory looking out over the best view in London. And who are you? I'm Ned Bolting, and I am a cycling broadcaster and writer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So what's the plan, Ned? Well, we're going to... Um, I live about a mile from here, so this isn't normally my starting point, but this is by far my most regular ride. This is my home road. This is, um, this is basically uh, how to get in from south-east London into the centre of town, uh, on, mostly on what is now known as Quiet Way 1, which is pretty quiet, actually, and uh, takes you through kind of ragged hodgepodge of a route uh, through some fascinating parts of by far the best corner of London, which is South East London. But you know that. You I'm, know that. I'm not sure I do know that. Yes, you do. I'm you just don't... You haven't admitted it to yourself. <laughs> that's the thing is, mate, I only ever come to this part of London oh, when I'm running go. marathons. <laughs> here we go. You know, the rest of the time... Well, we're right... Actually, right where we are now is exactly where everyone lines up, isn't it? It so, is. To get out of that gate and onto Blackheath. And... It really is. But uh, I'm a bit rusty on the old running front, so it'll be good to just do it on a bike for once. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the start point of, you know, the, the centrepiece of the view that we're just leaving behind us now of the, of the Isle of Dogs and the sweep of the River Thames and Canary Wharf, yeah. just the other side. But the kind of jewel in the crown in Greenwich Park is the Queen's House, which was built for Queen Anne in the early 17th century. Yeah. A really important building built by Inigo Jones. And I thought that'd be quite a nice start point. And I vaguely got in mind that once we get into town, we could probably just finish off outside the present Queen's House, Buckingham Palace. I love that. You've thought about this. Totally. You've, you've given this more thought than any other guests before. But this is a great excuse just to poodle around London. It which is. is. Which is uh, almost my most favourite thing in the world. You know how like people, when they're interviewed, say, yeah, the best, best moment of my life was the birth of my children, because yeah. they kind of have to say that, yeah. right? Some of the best moments of my life are, if I'm perfectly honest, just pooling around London. <laughs> Same thing. I mean, getting to you this morning across London from where I live in the north, across the city, came over London Bridge, and even though the traffic was abysmal and it was gridlock and I was having to weave through buses and past taxis in the city, I was still thinking, I just love London, and this is always the best way to see it is on a bicycle. Yeah, it is, it is. And, I mean, in some ways, you know, I... I suppose your podcast listeners, to some extent, Matt, are going to be the initiated and 
you know, the, the sort of people who wouldn't bat an eyelid about riding around London, but uh, the people I actually want to access, if I could only find a way of doing it, are those people who are wavering or hesitating on the brink of riding around London. Yeah. Getting out of the buses and the tube, and, or even, God forbid, the car, we're going left here. Um, and, but who are, who are still put off by the amount of traffic. And I, I'd just love to get the message out that as you're gonna see, like in the eight miles ahead of us, yeah. we're barely gonna see a car. Good, really? You know, we are gonna be so off-piste. This is one of the very few points where we're actually mixing with the traffic. This is great. It's this, remarkable. This is quite an unusual one then for, for home roads because, well, you know, anything goes, but people's home roads are different depending on how they ride and, and what they do. But yeah. I haven't done a cross-city urban amble yet. So I'm really looking forward to it. And seeing it from your point of view, I mean, I, I know my routes around town when I'm yeah. on the bike. Yeah. But yeah, well, every, London's very, I'm going right here. London's very tribal and territorial, isn't it? it? Is. So, you know, we don't, we don't understand how each other's and left, is it? Yeah, let's left down here. We don't understand how each other's little patches of the city work, do we? That's the beauty of the place, yeah. isn't it? That it, it is, you do recognise when you're on the bike how these are all villages and then towns that have merged together, to form yeah. what I think is the greatest city in the world. Yeah. And it's not planned, it's so organic. Yeah, which is, <laughs> which is part of the problem that I think cycling activists and people have in designing some sort of coherent structure yeah. for a cycling network. The fact that it is, I mean, look, look at this road we've just suddenly come onto now. This, is a, this must be a kind of like, possibly kind of 17th century road yeah. originally, you know? Yes. And it's just, you know, it's very narrow, tiny little cottages on either side, just off Greenwich Town Centre. And a tube train going past at the and end the of the road, going, or is it you know, overground, yeah. So, so it's kind of like, it's quite hard to, sometimes quite hard to see where you're going to build these big segregated highways for, you know, that really will keep cyclists separate from, from road traffic. It isn't going to be possible everywhere, no. even in the best utopian ideals. So I think one of the many kind of policies you can introduce is, is marking out these quiet routes. And right now we're about to hit Quiet Way 1, which is the most successful route, I think, in terms of uptake and participation that London's actually come up with so far. Are you from London, Ned? No, I feel like I am. I spent all my adult life in London. I left home when I was 17 and went to, um, went to live in Germany for, for a little bit. Then went to university and messed around in Germany for a few more years. But as soon as that adventure was over, I, um, I settled in London and that's a long time ago. <laughs> oh, why Germany in particular? I, um, I had a place at university to read modern languages um, and I kind of deferred by a year, so I had a year out. I, I just happened to do all right in A-levels, right? Yeah. I had no kind of multilingual, bilingual upbringing, I'd barely been abroad. Um, and suddenly realised I didn't actually know how to speak either French or German, so I sort of panicked and got myself over there. Because the only way to really acquire foreign languages is to, left here, is to immerse yourself, is to immerse yourself in, in, the, in the culture, I think. Yes. And, so I fell in love with Germany and uh, still feel very, very fond of the place and kind of drawn to it as a culture. This is so good showing, showing one Londoner around your part of London, actually. I don't often get to do this. It's great. Well, it feels like a bit of a privilege to have this, uh, you know, insight into these back roads. It's incredibly industrial around here, the river, yeah. and always has been, right? So this is Deptford that we're riding into now. And it's kind of the, between Greenwich and Deptford is marked by this little river. What's this? It's very tidal. This is Deptford Creek. You see that building there with all the kind of rainbow-coloured cladding? Yeah. That's a famous dance school, the Le Ban Conservatoire. Oh, I've heard of it. Let me get a yeah. picture of you. Let me get a picture of you with it. So Deptford Creek there, which is incredibly tight. So when the tide, the tide's in at the moment, when the tide comes out, it's just mud banks. It's yeah. one of those. You know? Yeah, yeah. 
So where did you grow up then before you headed well, off to do modern languages? So this is going to be a conversation killer because you're simply not going to know what to say after I tell you Bedford. Yeah, yeah, Bedford. That's good. Don't really know too much about Bedford. There you go. That's it. Uh, happy childhood? Well, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was, um, God, it was a long time ago. But it was, uh, it was great, you know. I used to have a, I had a bike, Valley Olympus. My dad, my dad bought it for me when I was about 12 from a small ad in the Bedfordshire on Sunday. And I remember really well, I remember going to the bloke's back garden, he got out of a shed, he was selling it. Yeah. And saying, yeah, it's been on the Tour de France, this bike. <laughs> it, was used, it was used on the Tour de France. And neither Dad nor I had the faintest idea how to judge whether or not he was... We didn't really know what the Tour de France was because no one really knew what the Tour de France was back then except for those people, those very few people who knew about it. Oh, the irony. Oh, the irony of that. That's Incredible. Good. Several decades later, and you are Mr Tour de France. <laughs> so we kind, of, we kind of stared at this bike and kind of like... We were pretty impressed, actually, if truth be told. Yeah. You know, we didn't know what it meant, but we knew it was pretty cool. Was know? it was it like my childhood bike in that your dad bought it several sizes too big? And yeah, 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 yeah. You'll, you'll grow into this, son. Yeah, And yeah. by the time you're 19, you still haven't grown into it. It's still too big. Well, I'm still a, sm I'm still a short ass, and I don't think I ever grew into it. I think I, I took it off to university with me eventually and didn't lock it up one time outside the pub, and that oh, was that, you know. That's heartbreaking. I had one of those feeble little combination locks with oh. the plasticky bit in the chain, and it just got cut. Yeah, rubbish. And anyway, so so that was kind of the end of cycling and me for probably 22 years or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Do you know, I think I was the same. I think all kids get into Just it. follow the stream of cyclists and that. They're all yeah. going in the same way, mate. All kids get into it and do it, don't they? I was, the, I was exactly the same. It was all rally bikes when I was a kid. You know, it was rally BMXs. Andy Ruffle was my hero, you know, the, the BMXer. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, the classic white rally with the red, blue and yellow trim, if you like, the paint job. I actually saw one on, an old school one on the way over this morning. It just takes you straight back to lusting after those kind of bikes. But same thing, I sort of forgot why I loved cycling once I got to university. No one cycled for transport then. No, absolutely and, not. And, and then it was only until I was sort of early 30s, a, a runner by that point, a, well, a runner of sorts, and I hired a bike on a trip to New York. I was there for work on my own, single speed. Yeah. And it was it was utterly revelatory. Why the hell aren't I doing this in London? You yeah. Know? Yeah. And that was it then. Yeah. Um, but I'd always enjoyed watching the tour. Yeah. I remember vividly Stephen Roach winning in '87 because I think in Britain it was treated like a, almost like a home success. Yeah. Yeah. It was Irish. Was that the case with you? Did, yeah, did, you I mean, did you always enjoy watching the, the racing, even, even though perhaps you didn't do it yourself? No, not at all. I mean, I, you know, I, only very occasionally did the concept of racing a bicycle punch through. And I, I'm in a kind of, sure, I remember hearing and reading about Roach's win, but I didn't understand it. I certainly hadn't watched any of it on Channel 4. I mean, I just wasn't interested. It didn't, I was a football fan, you know? Yeah. And, and, and honestly, man, I mean, people kind of, kind of blows their mind sometimes when they hear this, but I'd never seen or, any kind of bike race, whether on the TV or for real, until I went to the prologue of the 2003 Tour de France for ITV and watched David Miller dropping his chain and making a mess of it all. And, uh, and that was my introduction. But I mean, what an introduction. It was kind of almost instantly I was, I was totally enraptured by it. You know, I didn't understand it. No. It took four or five years until I even felt straight over here, but just a bit careful because there's cars. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it took years before I felt 
confident enough to express any kind of opinion or yes or really kind of claim to be on top of the subject matter I, I, I think you had to approach it you have to approach every sport with humility but I think cycling perhaps more than any other because it's such a complex code that road racing in particular even now I'm still trying hard to crack you know I think that's incredibly humble of you and I, I think I think everybody who listens to you commentators, seen your reports on the races, seen your interaction with the pros, read your books, know that you're absolutely about that. I mean, who else would admit they called it the yellow jumper for ages before, <laughs> before being corrected and it's been called the yellow jersey and then, and then call that the title of a book? It's, it's, it's very open and honest. Did you feel that, did you feel like an outsider that you just had to say, look, look, this is new to me and I'm going to figure it out, but I love it? I, I think I did, Matt, and I, I think I, I think it was a risk actually. With the benefit of hindsight, I think it's paid off to a certain extent. But I, yeah, I, I did feel left here. I did feel un I would have felt uncomfortable trying to fudge it and make out like I was one of the initiated, because anyone who was initiated would have seen through it straight away. Yes. You know, so a little bit of fronting up. But the, the reason that I think that book sold very well. Um, and continues to sell bizarrely is, is straight on here. It was just a completely fortuitous on my part that I think a lot of people in this country in particular at precisely that point were going on the same journey as I was. Yeah. So it struck a chord with people. You know, a lot of people were confusing jerseys and jumpers, couldn't get their heads around why if Mark Cavendish was the fastest in a sprint, why wasn't he winning the Tour de France? Quite. You know, all those, we may smirk and laugh now, but. Well, there's incredibly difficult, nuanced questions to kind of explain, actually, at yes. the beginning. When you think back to your baptism in the sport, you know, this, this was the stuff you were asking yourself. How many tours to France have you done? This will be number 16, I'm about to go and cover consecutively. So it's quite a number, isn't it? It is, it is. And it, it, is, it, is it one of the highlights of your year? It's the backbone of my year. It's, yeah. um, I think, yeah, I mean, I've written books and I tour my one-man show in the autumn now. And, well, we'll talk about that in a bit, yeah. But, I mean, all the other stuff that I kind of do and all the other commentaries and bits and pieces I do, I think they all lean on July. You know, if I think you took July away, the whole thing collapses like a teepee. Yeah. You know, but, um, uh, but, but that, you know, in that sense, it's, that's not dissimilar to... By the way, look at this. We're just streaming along this cycleway past all the stationary traffic. And it's great, isn't it? It is great. But in that sense, it's not dissimilar to the way the cycling calendar functions. Yes. The, the Tour de France is just a beast that overshadows everything and careful on this right hand turn because there we go so it's a bit blind you know and much as we rightly get excited we quite rightly get excited about the classics and we get excited about hipster races like the bink bank tour yeah. and, you know the the the, the <laughs> and all this sort of thing and much as the giro this year was just extraordinary and normally is great actually yeah. none of them punch through in the way that the tour de france does no no you know by the way we've just been past millwall football oh. club Right past Millwall Football Club by the New Den. The New Den. And... Scary. There's an incinerator, we, the massive great big incinerator we just rode past as well. Which, this, this is mind-blowing, right? You know Open Day London? Yes. Um, where you can just go and visit random buildings? Yeah. I went in there last time and I got a guided tour around the incinerator. Brilliant. So you know all the black bins rather than the recycling bins? Yeah. All the bad ones, all the naughty waste? Yeah, yeah. Greenwich, Southwark, Lewisham and Westminster, four big boroughs, yeah. all take all of their black bins to there. And it just gets burned. And it gets burned in these colossal furnaces. And you can see them, you get a little height, little peepee hole thing like that. 
And according to, I mean, they might be spinning a good line, but yeah. virtually no kind of noxious gases get released as a process. It generates huge amounts of power for the local houses and for the national grid. Amazing. And results in this residue yeah. at the bottom that gets turned into tarmac. Oh, great. And I kind of think, that, forget it, like with the David Attenborough plasticky yeah, thing, yeah. we've got to stop trying to recycle stuff. Uh, yeah, well, we've, oh, got, oh, we've got to burn more. <laughs> So we've gone from Deptford into Rotherhithe, and pretty soon we'll be in Bermondsey. And before you know it, we're only about half a mile from Tower Bridge right here. Really? Yep. Tell me then about what it's like to actually work on the tour. It's not a riot of fun all the way around. I think I'd be wrong to say that. You get, you'll get one day in four where you're feeling a bit unaccountably flat. Yeah. What becomes very difficult, and I've never managed to master, is, is kind of keeping a, a mental track of where you are and what you've just witnessed over the last few days and what's what's coming ahead of you in the next couple of days yes and i can hold it together for about four stages but by about stage five it just starts to slip through my fingers like sand you they know? sort of merge into one and and if someone said and honestly by about stage seven or eight and you and this is shocking really for a commentator but if someone says to you who won yesterday's stage often there's a 10 second reboot going on before i can answer you because it's just too much information, you know? You're holding I, so much in your head as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, 190, well, it's slightly smaller now, the peloton, but historically 198 riders. You've got to know stuff about all of them, really. You can't, you know, it's the Tour de France, for sake. Plus all the history of it, plus the parkour, plus the race itself. I mean, like, don't forget, when we get the printed results from ASO at the end of every day, it's a pamphlet, yeah. about 30 pages long. And I, I have a hole punch, right? And I punch them and I put them in an arch file which is full by yeah. the I mean it's like a massive it's like someone's written a PhD in cycling and you have your own notes on it and, and, <laughs> and that let, kind of let alone mind that's simply the results yeah that's the score yeah you know yeah. it's like someone saying so what was the score in a football match oh it's 2-1 what was the score in the Tour de France yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you drop that dossier down you go there you go mate that's the score um, Matt there is a little cafe here if okay it's lovely let's do it it's really nice and it's very it's very quiet way one because because it's quiet there's a few school kids Good coffee? Let's do it. You a coffee drinker? Yep. Good man. Hello, good thanks. Can I help you? Two flat whites, please. Yeah, to right yeah. Two, just drink outside if that's okay. Shall I pay you now and then? Yeah, Thanks. that's 560, please. Okay. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What's it been like spending time with Froome? Because I know you've been down to Monaco and you've hung out with him there and obviously you see him on the races. Johannesburg as well, where he winters. Yeah, I spent a few days with him in Joburg a couple of years ago. He's, um, he is, uh, 
I mean, it goes without saying that he's just one of the most extraordinary individuals I've ever met. Um, I think it was very interesting spending a few days with him in the winter a couple of years ago in Joburg because I got a sense of where he actually comes from. And none of us by the British myth, you know. Here we are sitting outside a cafe in Deptford um, uh, having a coffee. Nah, I can't see Chris Froome ever doing that. You know, it's not, it's, these aren't his streets. This isn't his language. This isn't his culture. You know, it's been a passport of convenience and for good reason. I don't decry him that. But to see him... Which the reason is, I mean, do you not think he's passionate about being British or is no. it, was it just a way of yeah. getting on in the yeah, sport? I mean, I, yeah, maybe I'm doing him a disservice. I know that his, I know that his family heritage, both his mum and his dad, draw back on, on Britain. But Chris isn't Brit. Chris doesn't identify with the way we are, really, particularly. And um, I don't think he's got any intention of identifying. What does he identify with most then? Kenyan? South African? I mean, I think it's uh, the kind of, if you like, the, the um, Anglo diaspora in Southern Africa. Yeah. I think there are strong connections between the, the British background kind of like population of in, in Kenya and certainly in Johannesburg. I think they share, well, they, they share relationships across the... But, you know, which, which isn't in any way to downplay this enormously exceptional relationship that uh, Chris has had from, from being a young man with, uh, well, he speaks Swahili, so with... Um, Africa's black community as well, you know, to whom he reached out and, for, and you know, received their welcome as well. And, and kind of like, that's an amazing story that I think often gets forgotten with Chris Froome. He, re- he really is a rider from the moon. He has come from, in, in, in cycling terms, he has come from completely outside of all Venn diagrams that have ever existed in cycling. He's the first big, big outsider to come and do something exceptional in the race. A big outsider, but still a person who clearly loves cycling over racing. He's a, he's a cyclist first and foremost. You can tell he does it for the love of it rather than the cut and thrust of, you know, yeah, the sport. Question. That's a good question. I think so. I think you're right. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I've seen so many pros retire and, um, you know, the minute they retire, they throw their bike in the nearest skip because it has become a toxic relationship for them. You know, it is a brutal profession and for very few is it well remunerated. For most, it's just a poorly paid uh, form of you know, virtual slavery to a, to a machine. You know, it's a nasty job. So if, if you're asking me, will Chris poot around on his bike? Yeah, he might do, actually. Back on the mountain bike, He, he might do. I think he'll be back. On, see, I have this image that may, you may prove me wrong, but whenever it comes to, call it, you know, whenever that moment comes where he calls it a day, I imagine Chris Froome taking his considerable chunk of money that he's earned in Europe and um, buying a chunk of Africa and sitting on his deck uh, with a, with a um, I hope he gets nice and chubby, you know. I can't uh, see it. I can't see it. <laughs> but with a sundowner and looking out. On. Yeah. <laughs> but looking out over kind of wildlife roaming because he's deeply interested in wildlife. He always has been, and I think I think we won't see him. You know, I don't think he'll be. He won't. He won't hawk himself around. And I doubt an injurine kind of champion. Yeah, it'll be it'll be enigmatic and largely invisible and gone. Yeah. You know. Back to riding the bike, which we yeah. will do in a second. Uh, do you actually get to ride at all when you're away following the tour around France? Um, yeah, well, we, uh, I, th- I guess a lot of people know that David Miller and I, as the commentary team, we have um, his Chapter 3 Brompton fold-up bikes folded away in the boot of the car. Actually, that's a lie. They're folded up and they're on the back seat of the car, falling on top of me normally. <laughs> uh, but every now and again, no, every day if we can, and it is most days, we'll get them out. And we're fortunate enough to have Christian, who drives us around as well, so he can drive the car to the finish line. David and I will look at the route, work out how much time we've got until we're commentating, and actually calculate 
uh, whether we can ride the last 20k yeah. of a flat stage or the last climb of a mountain stage. It's good, good to wreck it. So really, really good actually, yeah. enormously good. I remember the first time we did it was on stage one and stage two of the 2016, uh, 15, 16 Tour de France on the Cherbourg Peninsula. And that stage that Peter Sagan won as stage two was one of those really typical opening week stages with like little kind of like things that look like nothing on the profile but in the last 3k it was full of little dips and ramps and little starts and turns and if we hadn't actually ridden it we'd have had no idea what was how that might have affected the race and of course even having ridden it i still didn't understand but riding it with david miller yes uh, he was able to say now here look stop because this is a point where you've got to do this and that you know this little left-hand turn is significant because of this that kind of fine detail that only a racer can understand that insight's incredible isn't it i think the other thing that you see pros and ex-pros recognise is they can tell who's riding just by the way they're pedalling. They, they, they're so used to riding amongst other people. That's a hard thing for a non-racer to come into, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's something I think it's, uh, as you switch from d doing what you do and I, what I did, Matt, presenting, you know, into commentary, which is, I think people from the outside think that they're kind of like the same mix of jobs. and then I mean, So then, different. You know, it's, it's in many ways, it's the difference between between being a goalkeeper and an outfield player. I couldn't know. commentate. I you're couldn't on the, commentate. You're on the like same you pitch, but, but it's... Well, you don't know until you've tried it, Matt. Well, I'm so, going to try it. <laughs> but, but it was the first thing I had to concentrate on, I yeah. think, rider recognition. Yeah. Who are your favourite riders? Who are, the, who are your favourite people in the sport that you've come across? As, as human beings? Just any, for any reason. I mean, I've always had a real soft spot for... I know, it's weird, I kind of read these things that apparently... He's not so well liked in the peloton. A lot of people are a bit fed up with him. But I've always had an enormous soft spot for Tony Martin. Um, he has, he's one of the first riders I kind of sat down and spoke to at length years and years ago when he was quite young, very young, um, about stuff in his past outside, completely separate from, from cycling. And I found out to my uh, astonishment, really, that they had a personal history that I really engaged with. He, um, he was a very young kid at the time when uh, East Germany was falling apart. And he was, he was one of the family, his parents took him on holiday to Hungary and ended up uh, camping for weeks on end in the ground, breaking into and camping for weeks on end in the grounds of the um, West German embassy in Budapest. Um, and it was because of those East German families who basically applied for political asylum in West Germany, on West German territory in Hungary, they were the reason that ultimately so much pressure was brought to bear on uh, the East German government at the time, Erich Honecker, that, um, that, that it all collapsed. Wow. And, and Tony Martin was at the heart of that. And um, I was living in Germany at the time uh, during reunification and, and uh, when the wall came down. So I felt, and I, you know, it's a country, like as, as I said to you, I kind of care passionately about. So I, I just, uh, you know, it's very interesting to talk to him about that and about, you know, so I like I Tony. In fact, I have a soft spot for almost all the German riders. I think they're wonderful guys. Fabian Wegmann, yes. um, Marcel Kittel. Uh, down the years, they've been, um, they've given me a lot, yeah. And it was, good to, it was good to get to know at a few events recently, a rider who, when he was racing, I never got to know, but now I have got to know him a little bit, and that's Jan Ulrich, who I always thought was a, um, just a sour-faced, yeah, stony-faced, difficult, yeah. difficult man. Yeah. Turns out he's, he's an absolute bundle of laughs, and he's a great bloke. <laughs> now the who pressure's knew? off. Yeah. So aside from doing the races and the, the other TV stuff and the writing, more recently you've come up with your one man show on stage called Bicology, which is, that's a bit of a departure. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it is a bit. It's um, it's nuts, really, actually, Matt. It's absolutely nuts. It's kind of stand-up comedy, one-man show, as you say, in big theatres, and we tour in the autumn. I'm into my third year of it now. Brilliant. And um, actually, the first two years, it was called Biology. This year, it's going to be called Tour de Ned, which is an amazingly imaginative title. <laughs> uh, but but it's going to be it's going to kind of recreate the story of like uh, the story of whatever the hell happens in the Tour de France. So um, stage by stage, really, and we're going to have huge digressions and kind of like little sidetracks and of delves course. into history and lots of behind the scenes footage that I'm going to film during the tour with Miller and Boardman and the rest of them. And uh, I think, I mean, there's just this kind of colossal, almost unquenchable pent up thirst and demand for that stuff, Tour de France stuff yeah. in this country. And um, people, just, people just love lifting the curtain on kind of what. what what the race is all about behind the scenes and so that's going to be a celebration of all that and it is sounds nuts but it's kind of it's loads of music and loads of pictures loads of stuff but it is just me kind of on stage for a couple of hours with an interval in proper theatres so that's what I do now in my year divides between writing broadcasting and thesping I suppose is kind of like the best way of putting it are you getting um repeat visitors because if you're changing it up every year you're getting that's the idea a decent crowd Lord, yeah Lord come back cards. yes quality cards. <laughs> cards are being issued yeah i mean we're trying to get it take it around the country as much as we can but one or two venues we keep going back to like yeah. the city varieties in leeds because it's just amazing and, really yeah you, you get so you get to see where there's a, a decent cycling scene yeah I, and it I, won't surprise you to know that yorkshire which of course as we are now all know invented the tour de france <laughs> Uh, is uh, is a real hotbed actually. Yeah. yeah, you must derive a different kind of pleasure from doing that. The inst the instant feedback. Do you know it's terrifying? It's so unlike what we do, telly man. I mean, I can't. I don't tend to get nervous. I mean, I don't know if you do. I, I maybe a little kind of a, you get a degree of concentration. Yeah, on. yeah. That's about as as much as you ever get with telly. But honestly, I mean, I've done 40, 50 odd shows now over two years. And I am just a bag of nerves in the dressing room on my own, pacing up and down, listening to those funny little tannoy speakers into the, into the dressing room that relay the noise of the crowd filling up. Are you sat and there in a silk robe, with your, <laughs> en enjoying your rider, listening to Gary great. Newman? Oh, that's a good idea. Gary Newman. <laughs> Gary Kemp. Gary Kemp, fellow cyclist, exactly. future guest of Home Roads. I'm Rose. sure, I'm sure. Yeah. This is a remarkably hassle-free ride it? into it's absolutely the lovely. West End. It's, yeah. it's, it's incredible. Right, we just crossed over Blackfriars Bridge. And even though now, Matt, it's 10.30, so long time since rush hour has been passed. We've got like a dozen cyclists. At rush hour, 70% of the traffic across this bridge is on this cycle lane. Brilliant. Yeah, it's heavy. It's I, happening. I, it's I, I, happening. We're, we're getting close to my manor now. I use this one. So left here. Should we just go yeah. around on the embankment? Yes. Yeah, this is always chocker here. Yeah. Right? Just up to Trafalgar Square, and then we'll just ride up the Mall. Got to finish on the Mall. That's kind of what the idea I had. Yeah. Well, uh, so that's it from the Queen's House in Greenwich to. Um, the Queen's current house and the Mall, Buckingham Palace. It's been good, hasn't it, Matt? I mean, like, okay, so we got snarled up there with all the traffic in Trafalgar Square, but other than that, we've just literally pootled with my England flag, <laughs> which will infuriate all the kind of metropolitan cycling elite Guardian readers, but uh, I support the England team, and I, I don't care who knows it. Um, but there we go. Yeah, well, not a bad place to finish. And it's, once again, 
it's been closed to traffic. I don't know why they do this, but they do it more and more often, don't they? The, the so you can just go like this. Look at me, I'm on my bike. I'm on my bike. They've done it for us, Ned. You know yeah. that? Yeah. Ned, fascinating talking to you as ever. Could, for I, think, I think we could talk and ride all day. Let's and do it. It, it, it would. Well, I've got it. I've got things to get to. <laughs> I haven't. Fascinating as ever. I'm just putting off doing my prep for the tour. <laughs> Glad to be of service. Lovely talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.